Well, friends, it's good to be with you and with many of you again. Uh, this is part of my uh, Once Every Few Years series that I do when I come here, so I hope you remember what I said last time, and I just want to pick it up from where I left off. <laughs> One of the most pithy presentations of the truth that I can ever remember hearing was by my dear friend Al Moeller. Al was talking about this human situation that we find ourselves in, and how so many people think that the problem is outside of us, situations, circumstances, and the solution is inside of us. This is what, at least in America, we're often taught, and I know in the West, we need to be true to ourselves. Uh, every TV show you ever see, every movie has this theme of the need to be authentic. When Al said the truth is, the problem really is on the inside of us, our own sinful rebellion against God, and the solution comes from outside of us the righteousness of Christ. Well, friends, I, I think that's a good summary of what our hope is as Christians. So if you're here tonight and you simply had a, a less than stellar social lineup for your Friday night and decided to come along with your Christian friend to this church, I just want to speak on behalf of the congregation that meets here, you're very welcome. Uh, I think it would be helpful right at the very beginning for you to understand that in our understanding as Christians, this is the situation. The problem we understand is actually inside us. And the solution to life's problems lies outside of us. Uh, that's what we call the good news, the gospel. Uh, this is the idea that we have all done that which is wrong and that God is really good. And in his amazing love and mercy, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. He lived a life of perfect trust in his heavenly Father. He died on the cross accepting the penalty that he did not deserve, except as a substitute for all of us who have sinned against the Lord and would find our hope in him. He died in the place of our sins, paying the penalty that we deserved. And God raised him from the dead, and he presented his sacrifice to his heavenly Father as acceptable. And he calls us all now to turn from our sins and trust in Him. He gives us forgiveness and new life. And that's what we Christians understand we have found. That's the, the solution, the great news uh, that we gather to sing and to celebrate. So if you're here and you are a Christian, uh, what I just said doesn't come as any surprise to you. But in our time together this evening, I want to push on into our lives together as Christians. I want to grab that gospel that we begin with in the Christian life, and I want to run it forward. I want us to consider the sufficiency of the Bible for the local church. That's going to be our end point. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to believe? What are we supposed to do together in church? How are we supposed to make decisions? Lots of practical questions are faced by Christians. And Christians answer them differently. So some of the churches that you've come from or that you'll go to do things very differently than, say, the church that I come from in Washington does, even if they preach the same gospel. Now, how does that happen? Why should it be the case that churches that preach the same gospel would do other things differently? And what should we think about such differences? Is anything that two gospel-preaching churches 
can disagree about, by definition, unimportant. Let me ask that question again. Is anything that two gospel-preaching churches can disagree about, by nature, unimportant? I wonder if you can imagine what I'm talking about. Let's say that you're having a conversation with some friends. <clears throat> Let's call them James and Mark. And let's say that you're all Christians and you all agree on the gospel and you all agree on the authority of Scripture and you all agree on lots of particulars, but let's say that on some matters that have to do with the church's life together, they simply don't think that God has said anything in His Word. Uh, when should we meet? What should we do when we do meet? Uh, do we all meet together? Or can we have different services? Maybe even different styles of services. Maybe even in different buildings or different parts of the city or in different states or even in different countries and still be one church. Is that okay? Does God care? And who should make decisions in the church? How are they to be made? Should we have members or is that too exclusive? Maybe what's most basic of all, how are we to make these very decisions about these questions that I've just raised. Over the centuries, Christians have determined some questions simply by reason and prudence. Others have been led more by their experience. Sometimes it's individual experience in terms of an interior impression or a sense of God's leading. Sometimes it's been corporate in terms of church traditions. In some churches, it's simply whatever the people want, or whatever the elders say, or whatever the pastor says. I think for most today, it's simply some form of pragmatism. My dear friend in Australia, Philip Jensen, loves to surprise conservative reform types by advertising that he believes in biblical pragmatism. Much of our concern today is to be sensitive to the particular culture that God has put us in. How can we contextualize our message? Some of us were thinking about this afternoon. How can we be Jews to the Jews and Gentiles to the Gentiles? Do we do what works best? Sort of business practices that are best practices? Creativity, innovation, productivity, efficiency, said in lots of different ways. What will help us reach the most people? Uh, what will best extend our influence? Well, this issue of how we are to think of our life, our doctrine, our worship, even our polity in our local church. How your church and mine are organized and governed is important. And it is so rarely addressed. So I want us to take some time to consider it more carefully and deliberately. And in order to do this, we'll be jumping around in our Bibles a good bit. I don't have just one passage that I intend to expound, unlike, say, this coming Sunday morning, Lord willing, at UCCD, where I do hope to expound a passage, though a long passage. The only way we know the good news of Jesus Christ that I shared just a few moments ago is because God has revealed the truth about Himself. And He's done that in His Word, in the Bible. The truth of Christ is the means God's Spirit uses to reconcile us to Himself. New life comes through the Word, just as Jesus prayed that it would. You remember in John 17, verse 20? 
My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those, and it's fascinating how Jesus then goes on to describe Christians. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And that's exactly what happens. We see when we read the rest of the New Testament. In Acts 10.44, we find Peter preaching to Cornelius and his friends. And we read, while Peter was still preaching, speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And then in the next chapter, in Acts 11.14, we see this is what God had told Cornelius to expect. Peter will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. This is why over in Romans 10, Paul reasons as he does about the necessity of having someone to preach this message. Because as Paul put it in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the message. And it's not just in the beginning of our Christian life, it's throughout our Christian life. We find that we turn to God's Word. This is our lifeline. The Bible is where we feast. So Paul wrote toward the end of his life to the younger pastor Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing in His kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Well, friends, this message is an attempt at such careful instruction to help us understand and recover faithfulness to God's Word in something that is not essential for our salvation, but that is important. What is the local church to be and to do? May God help us to think well about the church. So just as Scripture teaches us about all of life and doctrine, it teaches us about our lives together as we assemble as a church for corporate public worship. It also teaches us important things about how we're to organize our life together in churches. It certainly doesn't teach us everything. But neither does the Bible teach us nothing. And it should be our desire to search out everything that God has revealed about Himself and joyfully accept it and adore it and explore it and submit ourselves to it and enjoy God's blessings in it. So that's what we want to investigate in our time together this evening. Something of what Scripture teaches us about life and doctrine, about worship and polity, and underlying it all, considering the fact that Scripture teaches us about these things. Sort of like teaching us movements. If you've ever been involved in athletics, in a sport, or if you work out at the gym, you'll know that particular ways to do certain exercises will protect you from injury, and they'll help you, help you to maximize the results you're trying to get. Well, our form is shown us by God in His Word. We want to see how we should be as Christians. We look to the Word. So we're going to look first at three questions more briefly and then spend most of our time on a fourth question. So three questions more briefly and then most of our time 
on a fourth question. And I'm approaching the topic like this because I'm trying to tap into what we all know as Christians. I'm trying to help us begin in a very uncontroversial place for Christians. What we know that we are to do in seeking God's will in His Word, either by explicit command or by reasoning from principles in the Word of God. As Pastor Anand Samuel said to many of us this morning, to love God is to take His Word seriously. That's what we're trying to do here. So, question number one, what shall we do? Well, the answer's in the Bible. The basic idea is that God has made us. He knows what we were made for, so we want to look to His Word to see how we should live. God's always been concerned about how the people, specially called by His name, live. So when God called Abram in Genesis 12, out of paganism, He calls him to believe a promise. And that belief would affect how Abram would live. It would even affect where he would live. So later in Exodus, as Abram's descendants have multiplied in Egypt, God gives great instruction about how His people, His assembly, are to live. And that's what the books of the law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all about. In the New Testament, at the very end of Matthew, Jesus promised His disciples that His authority would be with them till the very end of the age. Now, was this, was this promise just for those initial apostles? No, because He promised it till the end of the age. This was clearly for those who would follow them in Christian ministry and witness together with those united with them. So these were instructions to Christians and preachers and local churches about what we're to do, we're to go, we're to make disciples, we're to baptize, we're to teach them to obey. Friends, God's Word has to do with life. Paul established churches and taught them in person and by letter how to live. It is by God's Word that Christ builds His church. A local church is a body of people that are marked out by the fruit of God's Spirit and love by God's holiness in our ethics and morals. Friends, by direct command or by implication or principles, God's Word tells us everything we need to know about every aspect of following Him in life, from marriage to work to grieving to evangelizing to eating. How shall we live? The answer is in the Bible. All right, question number two. What shall we believe? Now, how do you think I'm going to suggest we answer that? The answer is in the Bible. The basic idea is that God has revealed the truth about Himself and us, and therefore we are dependent on Him for the good news and for everything else that we need to know about God. This is what a church is in many ways. It's a group of people who not only are living lives of love, but who are doing so because we all agree on how we have been loved in Christ. God so loved the world. That is, He loved the world in this way that He gave His only begotten Son. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 at the beginning of the chapter, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly 
to the word I preached to you. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day. Friends, this message is mandatory to be believed if we would be Christians and if we would be a Christian church. That's why Paul is so hard on the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, if they would believe any other gospel. What shall we believe? Well, either explicitly, like substitutionary atonement, or implicitly, like the Trinity or church membership, the answer is in the Bible. You see the basic form, the basic pattern that I'm suggesting as Christians is is planted deep in us. So having seen how this normally works in the Christian life, we can't be surprised then to find out that a third question gives the same answer. Question number three, how shall we worship? The answer is in the Bible. The basic idea here is that God tells us how we should approach Him in public worship. We read the Bible. We sing the Bible. We preach the Bible. And we pray the Bible. A church is not simply a group of people who believe the same gospel and live distinctly spirit-led lives. We're also a group of people that comes together regularly in order to worship God, as Jesus said in John 4, 24, in spirit and in truth. And this is to be true of all of life. And that certainly includes the times when we assemble together as a local church. We're commanded in God's Word not to forsake these regular assemblies. It's no surprise then that God should instruct us in His Word on what we are to do together when we do assemble. Though they can have a secondary role, creativity and innovation are not primarily what worship in the local church is about. Given what we are like as sinners... Even though we are redeemed, we are still fallen, we are unreliable guides to invent things that we would then require each other to do in coming to God. God has told us in His Word all we need to know about what we should do in coming to Him together. In the Bible, again and again, human innovations and inventions were idolatrous. Consider the golden calf. In Exodus 32, uh, the Israelites were sincere in their desire to worship the God who had delivered them from Egypt, but look at how horribly wrong they went. Their disobedience to God's commands about idolatry and adultery, their rejection of what they were to believe and do, showed itself in this grotesque distortion of public worship, which they did around this calf idol. Friends, one of the things that separated God from the false gods of the Old Testament is that the false gods were mute, and the people creatively figured out how to approach them. The true God spoke, and He told His people how to approach Him. I think of the Lord's words in Isaiah 29, 13. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. In fact, Jesus quoted this very passage in Mark 7 when he was correcting the distortions of the traditions of the Pharisees 
that they brought to the worship of God. Friends, depravity makes us unreliable guides. We need God's self-revelation, always reforming us, or we are lost. Everything we do in our church times on Sunday morning, we intend to do in obedience to God's Word. If you were to look at the bulletins that our church passes out and uses, I just have to have Sunday, happen to have Sunday's bulletin left here in my church, or in my Bible from, from Sunday. So here's our Sunday bulletin. If you were just to look at this, uh, everything in it, if you examine it, if you look over our, our order of service, so this is what happens during the sort of two hours that we're together on a Sunday morning, everything we do should be rooted in what we see we're called to do in Scripture. So you'd see a scriptural call to worship. So the first words, after some announcements, that take place, and even then we have a kind of a oral moat of silence that separates the Gabby announcements from then the serious time of public worship. We have a period of silence. And then the first words we hear, the call to worship, are not even a citation of Scripture. Romans 10, it is literally the words of Scripture. The words of Scripture call us together as a people. Standing is a sign of what creates us as a people. Even as Romans 10, 17 talks about our faith coming through the message, and even as we find calls to read God's Word throughout the Bible, we formally begin our time together by hearing God address us in His Word. We may use various summaries of statements of what the Bible teaches. We confess with our mouths, as Romans 10, 9 calls us to do. We also sing hymns and psalms and songs because we're commanded to do that. It's not just a good idea or somebody likes it. Somebody in the music ministry really wants this to happen. Can we have some more time, please? No, God's Word tells us to do this. James 5, 13. Romans 15, 11. Ephesians 5, 19. Colossians 3, 16. We pray and praise as we are instructed to in Hebrews 13, 15. And we pray in intercession as we're instructed to in James 5 and Ephesians 6, 18. We read God's Word to each other as we are instructed to do in Revelation, or see, rather, in Revelation 1, 3. We confess our sins as we're told to do in 1 John 1, 9. And we remind ourselves of God's glory for our great comfort. We give financially as we're instructed to in Galatians 6, 6, in 2 Timothy 2, 6, and as we see exampled in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and the example of the Philippians in supporting Paul's ministry. The preaching we see commanded in 2 Timothy 4, 2, and exampled throughout the book of Acts. So how shall we worship? The answer is in the Bible. All this brings us to our main question for our time together. You've just experienced what at Capitol Hill Baptist Church we call a sermon's introduction. Fear and tremble, beloved. Question number four. How shall we live together? This is the question of the polity or organization of a church. Are there a diversity of church structures in the New Testament. So did things start out kind of charismatic in Acts and 1 and 2 Corinthians, 
but end up sort of Presbyterian by the time we get to 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus? Or is there a consistent government of the local church presented in the New Testament? Here's the basic idea in this point. God created the church. So as with our own experience as individuals, God the author is in authority. He tells us what a church is, and He tells us how a church is to function. How should the church be organized? Friends, if for all these other how questions, we've seen that the answer is in the Bible, why would we stop here from that regular Christian form of submission to the God who has revealed Himself to us? How should we be organized in the local church? The answer is in the Bible. We need to know what a church is intended to be if we're going to be able to evaluate how we're doing and what we should do going forward. Imagine trying to be a good husband or a good wife if you didn't know what marriage was. There's a freedom that comes with ignorance and another very different kind of freedom that comes with instruction. The freedom of ignorance is unconstrained, but also unfruitful. Feel free and go ahead and try to use that keyboard as a vacuum cleaner. Try to hoover the place up with it. See how it does for you. You're free. That's one kind of freedom. But there is a freedom that comes with instruction that's far more satisfying. Using something in accordance with the purpose for which it was designed. Using that keyboard to make music. It'll be more useful to you. You'll see what all the parts are for. According to our own church's statement of faith, a visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the ordinances of Christ, governed by His laws, and exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by His word, that its only scriptural officers are bishops or pastors and deacons, whose qualifications, claims, and duties are defined in the epistles to Timothy and Titus. Close quote. A church is governed by Christ's laws and living in obedience to His teachings. The Bible tells us how we are to function. This is what the Westminster Confession said so well in chapter 1, section 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now, here I should just note that many otherwise Bible-believing Christians today may not accept the idea that the Bible tells us how we're to organize our church. And that for a few different reasons. Uh, perhaps you've thought that the Bible doesn't teach us how we should organize our life together as a local church. That may have been the opinion you walked in with tonight. Uh, many question whether the Bible teaches on this at all, either explicitly or implicitly. I think that in most evangelical and even Baptist seminaries today, it's suggested that there is no consistent pattern of polity in the New Testament. 
Well, brother or sister, if that's been your assumption, just ask yourself this question. What would you do if there were teaching on this in the Bible? Many are cautious here. Scripture can be sufficient without its being specific on anything we might wonder about. I mean, people can imagine things. People can read things into the Bible. And that is certainly true. But I think we want to be clear that Scripture is sufficient in helping us to do whatever God would have us to do. Select a job. Select a car. But that biblical teaching may not come in specifics, but in principles. However, in regards to the polity and organization and structure of a local church, we see in the Bible that God does seem to care about it. He has set, we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, different kinds of people in the church, including teachers and administrators. When Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 2, 5, he said that he was delighted to see how orderly you are. The apostle was delighted by their church order. In fact, in just a moment, I want us to turn to several examples of how at least some issues in our polity and organization are clearly addressed in the Bible. Others may reject considering this topic simply by saying, Mark, it's just not that, that important. It doesn't matter. I understand we're impatient today, aren't we, with anything that is non-essential. I often say about Americans that we have only two speeds, essential and unimportant. That's it. And those are two very, very important speeds. I, I want to affirm both those speeds. Things can be essential, yes, and things can be unimportant, many things. But friends, there's a lot of space between essential and unimportant. Some things can be not essential for our salvation, but essential to be able to have a, a church together. And other things cannot be essential for either of those, but still pretty important. And other things can be, well, not essential, and not pretty important, but, I mean, have some implications. And others can be, oh, they're not entirely unimportant, but it's not a huge deal. And then some things can be unimportant. You see, there's all kinds of spaces in there of examples that we could spend all evening coming up with. But friends, you can see that there are matters of real importance that aren't essential for salvation. These questions are not essential for salvation, but they are important for our living out our Christian lives in obedience to God's Word. And these commands are not arbitrary. Obeying them bears good fruit. Questions of polity and organization are of some importance. And sometimes, in the life of a local church, they are of crucial importance for its health or even its survival. I always say, you put a healthy Anglican, a healthy Presbyterian, a healthy elder rule, and a healthy congregational church next to each other, and they look almost identical. But all of a sudden, you let something go wrong, and the polity of all of them comes out in living color. And you start noticing how important these issues can be. Last objection I'll consider. Nobody thinks this, Mark. Well, that's not true. All of 
my Baptists and Reformed forebearers thought about such matters, including many Anglicans, Christians in the past have seen specific polities, ways of organization, in the Bible. That's why whole denominations are called Presbyterian or Congregational or even Methodist because of how things were done. In America's national history, New England was founded over such matters. I'm the pastor of a Baptist church. Baptist churches were founded for this reason. So lots of Christians before us have thought these matters were very important because they thought they saw them in the Bible. So speaking for the congregation I serve, our church agrees with Christians before us, including the ones who founded our congregation 144 years ago this past Sunday, that the Bible does teach about these matters and that they are important enough for us to consider them carefully and to study the Scripture carefully on these points, expecting to find some answers on how we are to structure our lives together in our local churches. We want to fashion our church structure and practices on the explicit and implicit teaching of the Bible found in commands and examples. Now, the examples, of course, are to be followed uh, of good things. I'm not talking about the examples of sin, the examples of heresy, but we're looking for examples of following biblical commands. And there is a small middle category of examples and even some commands which were temporary and situational, like greeting each other with a holy kiss, and yet even they embodied larger abiding principles. Unending discussions can be had about this middle kind of example. But now I want us to consider four examples of how what the Bible teaches on polity does matter and in ways many evangelical Christians today do not appreciate. The first and most basic matter of church polity is answering the simple question, number one, who is the church? Who is the church? And the answer is, the members comprise the local church. The members comprise the local church. Really, the most basic question of polity and belief are member and membership. What do we believe and who are we? The, the what do we believe, we considered a few minutes ago when we saw that the Bible teaches us what we should believe, the congregation has the final say on who its own members are. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul refers to a punishment inflicted on an apparently straying member, and that punishment was, we read, inflicted by the majority. And it's interesting, Paul was not writing 2 Corinthians to the elders. He was writing to the congregation as a whole. This fits with what we see back in 1 Corinthians 5, where again, Paul speaks to the whole local church about the need to expel an unrepentant sinner from their number. And in this, Paul seems to show the same instinct or form that we've been seeing in the things of God. We live as God tells us to live. So Jesus in Matthew 18 had taught his disciples that if someone will not repent of their sins, they are to be excluded from the local church. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 
seems to be obeying that teaching from Matthew 18 and exhorting the Corinthian church to obey that teaching of Christ. Indeed, it's in these passages on discipline that the meaning of church membership is seen. Discipline draws a clear circle around the membership of the church, and careful practices of membership and discipline are meant to mark the church off from the world and thereby define and display the gospel. This is why the idea that every member of the church should be born again is so important. Not just for that individual's eternal fate, as obviously significant as that is, but for the mission of the church itself. The church is to display by its life together far more than you or even a series of the most virtuous Christians can do in your own social settings. There is something about the operation of a committed, covenanted group of people together, a family operating beyond lines of blood and kinship that teach something to people in the world about the way God is and the way people made in His image are made to live. Churches which practice no formal membership and discipline are then, I think, at least making it more difficult for the believers who are part of it to follow Christ. They're making it more difficult for those elders to know who the church is. According to Hebrews 13, 17, who they're going to give an account for. In fact, churches that practice no self-conscious membership are in sin. According to the New Testament, we need to know who is and who is not a member of our local congregation. And what's perhaps even more important, they need to know it for their own soul's sake. A second example of polity in the Bible is in answering this question. Number two, who is finally responsible for what happens in the local church? And the New Testament answer is the congregation. You see that in the passage that I just mentioned from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, where the majority had made the decision to excommunicate the unrepentant member. That would make sense then with these passages about discipline in which it is the congregation that is appealed to to make the final decision to exclude someone. So we see that both the inclusion of someone in membership and their exclusions seem to fall within the authority and the responsibility of the congregation as a whole in the New Testament. By Paul's appeal to the Galatian Christians in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, rather than merely appealing to their elders, the elders in those churches, but appealing to those congregations themselves, even against an apostle himself or an angel, we see this great authority that Paul follows Jesus in recognizing that the, is held by the congregation. We see the same thing again in Paul's blaming those in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, who would, quote, gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We're quite used to blaming the false teachers. We're not as used to blaming the congregations that pay them. Paul, by the leadership and guidance of the Holy Spirit, blames the congregations 
that pay them. We see that the Bible does give us clear examples of the responsibility that members have for the teaching they receive in their local congregation. In these examples, the New Testament seems to show clearly that it was not something external to the local church, like an association of churches or ministers, or a general assembly, or a bishop that had final responsibility for what happened in the local church. It was not even a subset of the members, like the elders or the pastor, though we do have our own particular responsibilities. But the final responsibility for what happens in the local church is the congregation itself. Again, that responsibility is not held by some subset of the membership, like a council, or the elders, or a pastor. Though certainly we do have increased accountability due to our public teaching of the Word, James 3.1, what I'm doing right now. These are all finally matters of responsibility for the congregation. This final responsibility of the congregation need not undermine elder leadership in any way. Rather, it can both reinforce it and guard against an abuse of it. In a healthy church, the congregation will always, or almost always, support the elders. They will have the same understanding of Scripture and will take the same view of matters. The New Testament's congregational responsibility is not like trying to turn everything into a sort of immediate, in America we would think of a New England town hall meeting, an immediate democracy with no elders to lead them. So the congregation that you're a part of should normally joyfully submit to your church's elders. However, the formal allowance for the congregation's disapproval of what the elders might bring to you is an important, biblical, and sometimes even gospel-saving emergency break. God has revealed this in His Word. A third example of the Bible's polity that is increasingly ignored today, number three, do we have to meet together? That is, should there be a single service that the members of a local congregation are normally asked to attend together? One book says, and I quote, A multi-site church shares a common vision, budget, leadership, and board. Close quote. My question is simply, is that sufficient to make up a church? In what sense can it be a church if it never assembles? If it ne never gathers together? Or if it fails to do that regularly? We see throughout the book of Acts repeated references to the church meeting together. Uh, this fits with the very nature of a church which is, as the word translated church literally means, an assembly. Surely a local Christian church is far more than an assembly. So there are, in the book of Acts, you can find examples of secular churches, secular assemblies, like in Acts 19.32. But in the New Testament, a church does not exist without regularly assembling together. According to Hebrews 10.25, we're in sin if we don't. Indeed, it's this kind of regular assembling that the Holy Spirit naturally uses to knit our lives together and so develop the culture of a congregation, a culture of love and care, of holiness, of discipleship, 
of edifying encouragement and, and accountability, the kind of culture that there needs to be if the congregation is to fulfill those challenging responsibilities given it by Jesus in Matthew 18, 17, and elsewhere in the New Testament. Allowing for a certain amount of local variety, such committed lives together have always marked Christian churches. Today, however, practice seems too often to be leading principle. Even historically Baptist churches today have abandoned congregationalism. Many leaders in my own denomination, pastors of large churches, have long ago exchanged the cultivation of congregations understanding their responsibilities, each member understanding the responsibilities they have as members, and they've traded that for kind of centralized efficiencies. Pastors of large churches have become leader-centered, Presbyterian or even Episcopalian in their models. Such churches are more and more effectively defining the church as the shared leadership rather than the shared congregation, a strange echo of pre-Reformation times. But in everything from the celebration of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 to the demand to love others in 1 John 4.20, the challenge is not simply to love our own friends in Matthew 5.46. The wholeness of the congregation is seen to be an important part of its life and witness. And this is why in our own congregation we are committed to having only one site and one service. Though we gather again on Sunday evenings, but not as an alternative to the morning, Rather, we ask it, our members to come back. We gather in addition to it. We gather again. Friends, if you want to think more about what God has said about the congregation being together regularly, I would encourage you to get a copy of Jonathan Lehman's book, One Assembly. Final example of the Bible's teaching on polity. Number four, should we have multiple leaders? Should we have multiple leaders? Any talk of what the Bible teaches about church structure is, as I say, met with skepticism by many evangelicals today. One of those claims is about the nature and number of officers in a church. Well, with all due respect to some who would disagree, I think that the Bible clearly teaches a plurality of elders in a single local congregation and does so by presenting a consistent pattern in the New Testament. Indeed, Paul seems to assume in 1 Corinthians 14, 35, some uniformity of practice in all congregations. And that would fit with the uniform examples of a plurality of elders in each church we find throughout the New Testament. We see them enjoined in Titus 1 and mentioned about the church in Philippi in Philippians 1.1. The letter to the Ephesians doesn't mention elders, and yet we know from Acts 20 that there were multiple elders in the one Ephesian church. And a uniform example of something that Paul himself encourages and enjoins and instructs should be taken by us as something that the Bible teaches and that we should follow. As one early professor in the Southern Baptist Seminary put it, are we under obligation to adopt that polity which divine wisdom has pointed out to be best adapted to promote the ends of church organization? Or may we feel at liberty to change it or to substitute some other according to our views of fitness and expediency? That's the way professors in seminaries used to sound. Having a plurality of elders in each local congregation is a consistent pattern in the New Testament. 
Having a plurality of elders is therefore something that we should pray for and thank God for in our congregations. Friends, such conclusions are important because we see, though there are so many who don't seem to see today, but so many before us have seen, and here I have to say the churches that I'm running to here, running into, represented here in the UAE and who've done internships in the churches here in the UAE, seem to see that God has revealed His will for us on these matters. And so ours is to hear and heed His word on this as on any other matter. For decades, Harvard College used William Ames's Marrow of Divinity as the assigned theology text. In it, Ames asserted that, quote, man does not have power either to take away any of those things which Christ has given his church or to add things of like kind. Yet in every way, he can and ought to make certain that the things which Christ has ordained are furthered and strengthened because Christ alone is the head of the church. The church may not properly make new laws for itself for instituting new things. It ought to take care only to find out the will of Christ clearly and observe His ordinances decently, with order, with greatest edification resulting. Now, a few questions for us to consider about this. Number one, Mark, where is this in your outline? It's just a thing at the end, all right? So we've done these four big questions, and in the fourth one about polity, I've had four questions as examples, and now we're just at a kind of sidebar, like, how do I handle all this truth? Okay few questions. Number one, can we be flexible on anything? Yes. Many other issues of uh, polity and organization are matters on which we can be flexible, depending on the specific circumstances of time and place. For example, whether we have a Sunday evening gathering, or committees, or Sunday school, or task-specific deacons, Scripture speaks to none of these directly, and the local congregation has liberty to organize for our own edification and so fulfill God's revealed purposes for us as a congregation. Can we be flexible on anything? Yes. Number two, does lacking any of these things mean that a church is not really a church? Well, here's a simple way Christians in the past have thought about this. Churches which preach the gospel are true churches. Churches which don't, aren't. Churches which may be lacking in these areas of polity we've been considering may be true churches then, if the gospel is preached, but they can also be understood as being irregular. That is literally not according to the regula, the rule, God's rule, the rule of His Word in the way that they are ordered, so they would be true but irregular. Three, so should we fellowship with those who don't agree with us on these and other similar matters? Again, if they have the gospel, we should. But even if we're convinced that they are in fact following God's revealed will in His Word here, that they're not following, rather, or that we are and they are not, we are still to be kind to brothers and sisters who are in error on such matters, even as they are so kind to bear with us where they think we are mistaken. You consider the example of Paul in Romans 14 
of how Christians are to deal with each other when we disagree over secondary issues. Uh, thus, I invite the brothers to preach. I invite brothers to preach at CHBC who do not agree with me on these matters, but who are with us in the main and can instruct us on countless points of God's word. I think one of our favorite preachers at CHBC to have visit is Ligon Duncan, a Presbyterian, who we know is in error. <laughs> and yet, he's so good. We find so much to agree on, so much to profit from. We've been blessed by the ministries of an Anglican archbishop in our pulpit. We have brothers in the faith as preachers of God's word that we are deeply in debt to, even if we have disagreements over these matters. Number four, why do some people see more about polity in Scripture than others seem to? It's hard to say. This certainly wouldn't be the only area of diverse readings of Scripture. The Bible is clear on everything that we need to know in order to be saved. Beyond that, some things are hard to understand. Remember when Peter says that in 2 Peter 3 about some of Paul's writings? Some may see more because, like the Bereans in Acts 17, they give more care and attention to the topic. Others may expect to find more. Perhaps they've been shown it by those who've gone before. Maybe they've been someone who reads older writings, not just things that are written in their own time. And do notice that such matters are often best taught not by arguing, but simply by pointing out something in the Word and then letting it sit with someone. Our primary design in our studies of these matters is not so much to draw lines to separate us from other Christians, but it's to draw out clearly the path upon which we will walk to God. So God created the church. And as with our own experiences as individuals, God, the author, is in authority. In His Word, God tells us what a church is, and God tells us some important matters about how a church is to function. Friends, you see how Scripture's beautiful sufficiency frees us from the tyranny of mere human opinion. God has revealed Himself by His Word. He is speaking to us, preparing us to represent Him today and see Him tomorrow. A congregation of regenerate members fulfilling the responsibilities given to us by Christ Himself in His Word, regularly meeting together, led by a body of godly elders, is the picture that God has given us in His Word of God's church, or as He calls it in 1 Timothy 3, God's household that He bought with His own blood. As we read in Ephesians 3.10, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what God's about. Our concern should be like Paul's here, that the church manifest and display the glory of God, thus vindicating God's character against all the slander of demonic realms, the slander that God is not worth living for. God has entrusted to his church the glory of his own name. If all of this is going on here in the local church, it shouldn't surprise us that God should take such an interest in His beautiful bride, that He should be so clear about 
his church. And what's the result? Well, let me close with how one pastor described it, writing in 1589. This holy army of saints is marshaled here in earth by these officers under the conduct of their glorious Emperor Christ, that victorious Michael. Thus it marcheth in this most heavenly order and gracious array against all enemies, both bodily and ghostly, spiritual. Peaceable in itself as Jerusalem, terrible unto them as an army with banners, triumphing over their tyranny with patience, their cruelty with meekness, and over death itself with dying. Thus through the blood of that spotless Lamb and that word of their testimony, they are more than conquerors, bruising the head of the serpent. Yea, through the power of the word, they have power to cast down Satan like lightning, to tread upon serpents and scorpions, to cast down strongholds, and everything that exalteth itself against God. The gates of hell and all the principalities and powers of the world shall not prevail against it. This is what we find in the Bible about the church. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the salvation you give us in Christ. We thank you for your word and its sufficiently teaching us how to live in your love and in love with one another. Let me thank you for what you've revealed about your churches. Pray that we would understand, that we would be good students, and that we would be obedient. Lord, we thank you for the fruit that you bring in our lives through following what you tell us to do. We pray that fruit would continue to be more and more abundant. We give you thanks for how we see that here in this congregation, and in the fellowship of churches along with them. We pray, Lord, that they would continue to multiply to your glory and to the good of the people here in the Emirates and beyond. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.